Thank you, Pastor Chuck, and thank you, Church on Mill. Um, it's a, a joy and a privilege <clears throat> to have as many opportunities as I've had to share God's word with you, and it's such an encouragement to be a part of a church and a part of a community that is hungry for God's word. And so on behalf of uh, myself and James and all other residents who have come through, um, we're so grateful for you. Um, so without further ado, uh, this morning we'll be continuing in the book of Exodus. We'll be picking up in chapter 12, verse 43, if you want to turn there now. Last week over Easter weekend, we covered to say the least, some significant ground in the book of Exodus. We read about the actual Exodus along with the Passover. The, the title of the book was in the last chapter. That's big news. But if you have looked at the book of Exodus and paged through it a bit, you might have noticed we're actually only a quarter of the way through. Um, so we've had a, the title, the Exodus, happen, but there's still 75% of the book left. The reason is most of this book is actually about what happens on the way out of Exodus, on that, or on the way out of Egypt, on the road out. The road to the promised land. We are finishing up the first act of this book and we're seeing what happens on the way to the promised land. There's something I just want to say to you, especially fitting about that in relation to what the book of Exodus looks forward towards, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pastor Chuck told us last week on Easter that the Exodus reveals the paradigm of God's salvation. It foreshadows what God accomplishes in Christ him redeeming a people from slavery and bringing them into the blessing he's promised for them by a sacrifice. The Exodus is the paradigm of God's salvation fulfilled in Christ. So just like the Exodus of the Israelites is the beginning of their journey, so too for us, the events that happened on Easter weekend, the crucifixion of Jesus, the empty tomb, those things are pivotal. They're foundational. They're crucial. There's something only God can do but for those of us who follow Christ, they are the beginning of our journey with God. So as we spend the rest of this spring and summer going through the book of Exodus, hearing the stories about the Israelites journeying through the wilderness, as we hear the laws and instructions and the covenant that the Lord makes with them along the way, remember this, that our Christian life largely takes place between Egypt and the promised land, so to speak, right? We are on the way out as well. So that's sort of my pitch for the rest of the book of Exodus for us. This is about the people of God's journey into the promised land, and we are the people of God. The Old Testament was written down as things that happened to other people, but written to instruct us. But this week in particular, as we said, we're turning back to the end of Exodus chapter 12. We're picking up in the immediate aftermath of the events of the Exodus and the Passover. What happens next, right? And the, the point in this text being made is simply this. 
God has saved the people out of Egypt. The question's hanging in the air. What happens next? The Lord gives instructions to Moses that can be summed up by saying, those who are saved by God's strong hand are saved to be his people. Those who are saved by God's strong hand are saved to be his people. So, we who are the people of God, let's listen to the word of God in Exodus chapter 12. Would you listen as I read? This is the word of the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. Now all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. This is God's word. So who and what is the people of God? This text that we just read turns us on to that question when it starts talking about the Passover again, right? We just had the event of the Passover happen. The original Passover was God's means of delivering Israel out of Egypt. It's when he provided a lamb, a sacrificial lamb for the Israelites so that his judgment would pass over them and they could be delivered out of the land of Egypt. That happened on one night. But the Passover statute we just read is about the fact that God commanded the Israelites to keep that festival perpetually as a a memorial or a, a feast that they would keep every year. So as soon as it turns from a one-off event, something God did in history, into a memorial, a festival that the people keep every year, we're alerted to the fact that God is not just doing some isolated event, he's forming a people. And now he's giving them instructions to tell them who they are. The Passover statute we just read is about that. It's clarifying who is this Passover feast for? And who is it not for? So what does it say? It says, no foreigner shall eat of it, but all the congregation of Israel shall keep it. Israel or the people of God must observe the Passover, but those who are not Israel must not observe it. But we should note here, a foreigner here is not an ethnic designation. A foreigner is someone who's not circumcised, someone who's outside of Israel or the people of God, right? It's not an ethnic or a racial 
designation. And we know that because it says people from other nations or other ethnicities can join the people of Israel, right? We saw in the last passage that a mixed multitude from Egypt went up with Israel. And we see in this text that sojourners, people from other nations can come to dwell in Israel. They can become a part of the people of God, but they must join through circumcision. Circumcision is the sign that someone in the Old Testament is associated with God. It was the sign that of the, the covenant or the promise God made with their forefather Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, a covenant, that he would bless the world through a people, a people descended from Abraham. This is him fulfilling that promise. He's forming a people. And all of that people are to observe the Passover. But the point in excluding and including, the point in clarifying who is this not for and who is it for, is not to draw fast ethnic lines between Israel and not Israel, but a spiritual line between who is associated with God, who has put their trust in his promise, and who has not. The Passover was something only the people of God could keep, but all the people of God were required to keep it. Both the biological descendants of Abraham and the mixed multitude that went with them, and all the subsequent generations of Israelites that would come. And note that, even those who weren't physically there for the event of the Exodus were still supposed to identify with it. Even people generations later were still supposed to say, God saved me by that event, right? There shall be one law for the native and for the sojourner who sojourns with you. There's one sacrifice that makes one people of God. That's what the Passover is signifying here. One sacrifice. That's why in the middle of this, in verse 46, there are these two kind of weird instructions tacked in. You shall eat it in one house, and you shall not break any of its bones, any of the lamb's bones. The point it's making is that there is one sacrifice, and it's indivisible. You can't take God's sacrifice or God's people and divide it up. You can't break them into factions or into multiple households. There's one sacrifice for natives and for sojourners alike because there's one congregation, one people of God unified in his sacrifice. This people of God would grow. It would expand. It would inherit the land he'd promised for them. It would live on for many generations. But they were always to look back at this day this event, the Exodus, to understand who they are. It's much the same for Christians, right? Christians look back on the events of Easter weekend. The crucified Jesus and his empty tomb. As far as I know, none of us were physically there the day Jesus was crucified or the day he rose from the dead, but nevertheless, we confess that I am forgiven and I live. I am one of God's people because of that event. Later, we'll keep the Lord's Supper as our way of remembering that and identifying with it. The point here, though, is that God's sacrifice not only saves, certainly not as a one-off event, but God saves those whom he saves 
so that they would be his people, his one people, his assembly. So let's pick back up at the beginning of chapter 13 and see who these people are and how they're supposed to respond to this salvation. So reading now in Exodus 13, chapters 1 through 16, or verses 1 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day which, in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to your fathers, and he shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all the first, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn among man, among your sons, you shall redeem. And when in the time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, but the first, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. This is God's word. That was a lot of Old Testament laws we just read. Thanks for hanging with me. It feels like a lot, but really, all that we just read is summed up in two different ordinances, two different feasts or practices that God is commanding the people to keep, right? 
The first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we saw introduced back at the beginning of Exodus 12. It goes hand in hand with the Passover, this, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The second is he tells them to consecrate every firstborn man and beast to the Lord. Just to clarify what that means, to consecrate is a word of, uh, it means to make holy, to designate as holy. To make something holy means to specially devote it to the Lord, to recognize the thing you've made holy as belonging to God, right? To devote especially to God. Throughout Exodus, when we see consecration, it's that thing is now devoted to God. To consecrate uh, an animal for them, right? All the Israelites, they were herders as people. They would have had flocks. That would have been their main possession. They were to consecrate the firstborn of their sheep or their goats, clean animals like that that they would sacrifice. And the firstborn was set apart for the Lord, which in this case means it was sacrificed to say, the first and best of my flock belongs to the Lord. If it's a work animal, like a donkey, that's not something they would sacrifice, as the law later clarifies. But even that, they're to recognize even our work animals belong to the Lord. So we redeem it. That means they would sacrifice a lamb or a goat in its place, right? But even their children, God says, consecrate to me and redeem. To be clear, God never commands Israel to make human sacrifices. That's never part of the Old Testament law. But he does say that even your firstborn children, even you as people yourselves, belong to me. Therefore, when you have your firstborn child, as a sign of that, you redeem that child with a lamb. You ransom him back, in a sense, by sacrificing a lamb in his place. So two ordinances right in the aftermath of being snatched out of slavery and rescued from Egypt. What is the meaning of these two things? Why are these things first and foremost put here right in the aftermath of the Exodus? Both of them are ways of perpetually reminding the people of Israel, perpetually signifying to the people of Israel why God is their Lord and they are his people. They're a way of continually signifying he is the Lord of Israel and we are the people of God, right? Both the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Consecration of Firstborns are different ways of singing this same theme, just with different sort of emphases. They both say that God saves a people to make them into his people, right? The Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds them that God delivered them from slavery. It's a sign or a, a picture of their hasty exodus from Egypt. It says that in verse 8, right? When you keep the feast, you tell your son, I'm doing this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That's why the, the unleavened bread, it's, it's reenacting how they hastily left Egypt so their bread had no time to rise even. It's a picture of God delivering them miraculously from slavery. But they were slaves and now they're free. The consecration of the firstborn, though, reminds them that God has purchased their freedom, 
but he has purchased it so that they would be his people and he would be their Lord. Redeeming the firstborn reminds the people that they are a redeemed people, a ransomed people. Again, there's an explanation of that in verses 14 and 15, where, again, it's this sort of, when your son asks you, why do we do this thing? You will pass it on. You'll pass this teaching on and tell them. It's because when God struck down the firstborn of the, Egypt, of the Egyptians in judgment, I, therefore, sacrificed the firstborn of my flock. But because God redeemed me and called me his son, therefore, I redeem my son now. We, Israel, are ever the redeemed people. God bought their freedom, but he bought them freedom to be his people. And that's fitting, isn't it? To do otherwise would be a little like if, he, if, if someone were to save a kidnapped child and then abandon that child and say, well, you're good now, the kidnappers are gone, and then leave them alone in the desert. That's not the salvation God performs. He doesn't save just anyone from Egypt. He saves his people, the people of his promise. They're saved from slavery into the household of their father. They're saved from the harsh, brutal rule of slave masters into the just rule of their king, right? Both of these two ordinances are centered around the idea that God is their Lord and they are his people because he delivered them with a strong hand. You might have noticed four times in that text that phrase came up, with a strong hand or by a strong hand, the Lord brought them out of Egypt. Now, God does not have literal hands, right? Jesus teaches God is a spirit. He does not have a body. But the text here, Moses is telling us God has a strong hand because he has acted powerfully for them. He's acted manifestly to them. They've seen the sort of devotion he has to them, the sort of power he has. What he has done on their behalf has been affected by his strong hand in a way no one else could have done. To speak of the strong hand of Yahweh is to remind us that our God is the living God. He reveals himself, acts, speaks, relates, forms a people. The strong hand of God is God's power to be our savior and his worthiness to be our Lord. The question then for us to really consider is what did it mean for Israel to do these ordinances? What did obedience signify? Because remember, these are instructions. Do these things. What were they saying about themselves when they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread or when they consecrated their firstborns? Summarily, we've already said, it shows they're the people of God. But more specifically, first, obeying and keeping these ordinances is a way of them identifying with the salvation of God saying, I am who I am because of the strong hand of God. That's what it's getting at in the text when it says these ordinances, it says this twice, these shall be as a sign on your hand or as a reminder, a memorial on your forehead. The picture is doing these things, keeping these laws is a daily reminder to themselves 
and a perpetual public declaration to the world, I am who I am. We are who we are because God delivered us out of Egypt. For generations and generations, we will always be the people saved in the Exodus. The people of God are not self-made. God didn't save them because they were particularly worthy. He didn't save them to go be an autonomous collective. They identify themselves with his deliverance and his redemption and therefore submit to his lordship. Second, to keep these two ordinances is a way for Israel to live in light of the calling God has for them. It's a way of being the people of God. What does that mean? Note that these two ordinances are given actually in the future tense, right? When you come into the promised land, keep these things. Do this stuff when you come into the land. The people of God are promised an inheritance, a home, a place abounding with blessing. That's what the flowing with milk and honey picture shows us. For a reader in the ancient Near East, that would have meant a place overflowing with the best and the tastiest things that the world has to offer. Milk and honey, yum. But really, the fact that God gives them an inheritance, that he's promised this land for them, it shows us how different of a Lord he will be for them than their Egyptian masters were. It shows us the people of God are beloved. When we talk about how God saves them out of slavery to be their king, to be their Lord, it could almost sound at first like they're just kind of moving under new management. Right? New manager, same thing. But that couldn't be further from the truth. Frequently, uh, in the Old Testament, God refers to his people as his heritage or his portion. Right? His heritage. Even in Exodus, he calls the nation his firstborn son. For God to say, you are my people, you belong to me, follow my commands. For God to do that, that doesn't mean he thinks of Israel as more slaves. That doesn't mean he thinks of them as disposable possessions or fodder to send to war and be killed or something like that. They're his treasure. They're his people. He identifies himself with them. They're like his legacy, his children. That's why he has laws for them. Because parents teach their children the rules of their household, the values of that household. That's what God's laws are to his people. He's shaping them and training them and crafting them into who he created them to be. So keeping laws like the Feast of Unleavened Bread and consecrating the firstborn are ways in livi of living in light of being the people of God living as his heritage and his children. But even when they come into the promised land, even when they inherit the blessing, they will inherit it as the people of God, as the ones who call God their Lord and he calls their people, his people. He's still their Lord. And they're commanded to keep the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because God is 
always their Lord, and his salvation is always foundational to their identity. That kind of answers, hopefully, why the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of firstborn show up in the book of Exodus here. That's why they come right on the aftermath, right on the coattails of the Exodus. Why were you just saved? To be God's people. Now, remember that throughout your generations. Identify with that. Live in light of that. But remember, on this Sunday morning, as a Christian church, we have an interest in these things because these were written down as instructions for us. And if you are in Christ, you belong to the people of God too. These are instructions that show how God expects his people to respond to his salvation. So the New Testament, talking about the salvation Jesus brings, uses almost identical terms to talk about what it means for Jesus to be our Savior. Listen to these words here in Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul says here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, both natives and sojourners, we might say training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. The grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate fulfillment of the strong hand of God. God made manifest savingly in creation. Jesus Christ brings salvation for all, native or sojourner. He trains us to renounce ungodliness with all that he teaches. And he calls us now to identify with his salvation in light of the blessed hope we await. The same terms. God has done salvation. What does that mean? It means we're his people, and we wait and live now in light of the promises he's given. The salvation Jesus brings, just like in Exodus, is a redemption and a deliverance. And as verse 14 says so dramatically, The purpose of that is so that he would have a people, redeem a people from all all lawlessness. We are never enslaved in Egypt, most of us, but we are born enslaved to sin and lawlessness. Trapped. But we have a redeemer whose strong hand can snatch us out of it. A strong hand. Paul's instructions here in Titus are are fulfillments of the instructions written out in Exodus at length. To be clear, we as Christians no longer keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We don't sacrifice our firstborn sheep, even if we had sheep. Maybe some of you have sheep, I don't know. We don't keep those exact ordinances because there are types and foreshadowings of what's fulfilled finally in Christ. And further than that, we are part of a new covenant established in Christ 
We don't keep the exact ordinances anymore, but we do, we do confess that the one crucified Passover sacrifice has unified one people of God with that sacrifice, making us into a people that we can't divide up into factions, but is one people of God. We do believe that his strong hand delivers his people from slavery to lawlessness, and that he's redeemed us at cost to himself from it. God gave his son to redeem us or ransom us out of our slavery to sin. And the meaning of that is we're a redeemed people. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we are not our own, but we were bought with a price. Those who are saved by the strong hand of God are saved to be his people. Those who are saved by Jesus Christ are saved to be his church. That's who the church is. We're the people who God has miraculously, with his strong hand, redeemed. The decisive question then for us today, the decisive question on the immediate aftermath of the Exodus, just after Easter weekend, is will you receive this Savior as your Lord? Will you receive him as your Lord? Who is the Lord of your life? We don't really talk about lords today, but who's, who's the boss of your life? Who's the one who tells you what your purpose in life is? What the meaning of it is? Who sets the laws you live by? Who puts up the vision and the values that you make your decisions by? Who decides how you spend your time and your money? Who's the Lord of your life? Today and in our culture, our standard answer to that, our, our presupposition, is that it's everyone's responsibility to be his or her own Lord. That we each know ourselves better than anybody else could, and therefore we should decide for ourselves what's right or what's wrong, what will make us happy or what will not. We should make a path for ourselves out of Egypt. But friends, that's a futile calling. It doesn't really work. I think that's one of the points that Exodus depicts so clearly for us. Because we're not born as a blank slate, we're born in slavery in Egypt. Or in Titus's terms, in slavery to all lawlessness and sin. What else Exodus makes clear is that to be a Lord, to be a savior, requires a hand strong enough to bring it about. It requires a nature powerful enough to bring from slavery to freedom, from death to life. And none of us has a hand strong enough to do that. We can't do what the Lord alone can. We can't deliver ourselves from slavery. We're trapped. We can't redeem ourselves from sin. It's too costly. We are too guilty in ourselves. We can't make a lasting inheritance for ourselves. 
We can carve out a comfortable enough life for a few years, but it's in a fleeting way, not a lasting way, and none of us can beat death, that shadow that's always hanging over all of us that we choose to forget sometimes. We can't beat death. We can't make ourselves alive. But there is a Lord who can, whose hand is strong enough. You cannot have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. But he is powerful enough to save you, and he is good enough to be your Lord. The simple exhortation I have for you today is receive Jesus as your Lord. Be his people. If you're a Christian, if you're someone who has put faith in Christ and said, by that sacrifice, I believe I am right with God. If you've been saved by his redemption, you are in the people of God. But do you live like it? Have you submitted yourself to his instruction, to that one law that's for all the people of God? Have you devoted or consecrated every area of your life to the Lord? Or are there things you hold back? Are there things that feel like, I have a bucket here that I'm comfortable putting God in and the Bible and maybe religious things, but there's something over here that's too personal. This is private. That's not the lordship that Christ commands us to. Again, what the Apostle Paul says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. The entirety of your life belongs to him. You belong to the people of God, and his instructions are your sign and your guide. Don't hold back from the lordship of God, because that's the way to life. The law of the Lord, Christian, is good and it's sweet. It's uncomfortable for us. It pushes on us. It changes us. But the image Psalm 1 gives is that it is like being planted by the water. It's the way we flourish. It's the way we inherit what God has for us, all the good things. They're the rules of our Father's household. Don't resist the lordship of your Savior. But maybe you're not a Christian today. Maybe you don't believe. First of all, we're glad you're here and have stayed and listened this long, heard us out. We appreciate that. Maybe it sounds backwards or strange or even dangerous to speak of telling people to devote their whole lives to God, to a God we can't see, to a God that may be this vague notion of an authority figure. Maybe that sounds dangerous or bad. The testimony we're given, though, is these scriptures. The testimony we're given is this strong hand. The strong hand of God reveals who he is. And what does it tell us about him? His acts of salvation, whether it's snatching the people of Israel away from their slave masters 
or redeeming us from all lawlessness, the salvation of God by his strong hand testifies to his goodness, his faithfulness and trustworthiness. It testifies to his worthiness and his power, his qualifications. It's the receipt to show us that God is who he says he is. His promises are trustworthy. What kind of Lord is our God? Is he a harsh slave master? No. He's a God who advocates for his people when they've cried out to him. He's one who's delivered them from oppressive slavery. He's one that ransoms them out of that slavery at great cost to himself and provides instruction for them, who kneels down and tells them what he expects of them, teaches them who they're to be. He's a God who treats them as his children, his beloved ones, his heritage, and a God who in the end has a promise of inheritance for them, a blessing, happiness, and life. You are not enough for yourself. None of us is. But the Lord who created you is. His lordship is not a rule of slavery, but he bestows dignity. He bestows life and love. He's a God who wants you and cherishes you, not for what you have done, but for who you are. That's the God calling you to be his people. So whether you have believed for many years or not until today, identify with the deliverance of Christ and live as one he has ransomed. Because those saved by the strong hand of God are saved to be his people. There's one final portion of our text to close with where the laws close out and the narrative picks back up the action starts again. So let's read one more time from Exodus 13, 17 through 22. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And when they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. As we said, there's a long road left between Egypt and the Promised Land. Lord willing, you and I have a lot of life left, a long road ahead of us. This 
little piece of narrative at the end that maybe seems disconnected at first, but it gives us one last crucial element about what it means to be God's people. And it's simply this. The same strong hand of God that delivered his people from slavery, that same strong hand will be their guide and their protector every step of the way. God does call us to be committed to him, to be his people. But he is infinitely more committed to us than we can be for him. Perhaps it feels to you like this call to be the people of God comes with all these rules and laws, like it's an overwhelming requirement or an overwhelmingly high standard. But just remember that all these laws and instructions that we read today happen in light of the salvation that's already accomplished. They point back to what God's already done. They're not a requirement to fulfill in order to meet God's expectations. They're the rules of the household of the Father you've been adopted into. That's the foundation he calls, he builds our obedience upon. And he's there to guide every step of the way. So in verses 17 and 18, God guides the people away from an adversity they're not ready for. God is sensitive to what his people are capable of and what's too much for them. The bit about Joseph in verse 19 shows that God's faithfulness to us now and in the future is rock solidly rooted in the promises he's already made. Joseph, generations back, was certain God would answer his people and deliver them out of slavery. And his hope was not put to shame. God is faithful to his people on the road. And finally, on that road, by day and by night, the strong hand of the Lord was still there, never departing from his people, never leaving them to guess, never leaving them alone. The Lord of the Passover, the Lord of deliverance and redemption, is the God along with us on the road. So, take heart, church. Being the people of God is an identity that God calls us to live in light of, but the same strong hand of Christ that delivered you and ransomed you, that same hand is committed to you, committed to bring you home. He who started a good work in you will bring it to completion. That same strong hand will preserve you through your life, through your adversity, through your trials, through the sin that's plaguing you right now, that you're struggling with, through the uncertainty, that same strong hand of God, whether by day or by night, will never abandon you. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your strong hand of salvation for the deliverance you've shown us. We pray that you would give us grace to receive not just your salvation, but your lordship. To have the humility to obey your laws and trust that they are for our good. That especially when they are uncomfortable for us or confusing, you are teaching us your will, your values, your law. 
And God, we pray that we would be people identified with your salvation, with your redemption, that it would be a sign on our hand and on our foreheads that we would ever be your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.